Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's that time of the week again, the Rugby League rant, fifth and last. Put on your headgear, chuck in your mouth guard and get ready for an hour of nothing but NRL talk. We're joined now with a very special guest, Paul Kennedy. He does 6 to 9, the breakfast uh, news in ABC. He's a journalist. He's also an author. He's wrote a book, Storm Cloud. It's uh, the Melbourne Storm, The Demise and Resurrection. Uh, You've also directed a short film, I'm sure, called The Drug Game, about a local club you played for and getting rid of the drug culture down there, and co-wrote a book about the Catholic Church and sex abuse. So, mate, you've... uh, Definitely got yourself around uh, a lot of issues, but this one in particular, uh, what, made, what made you want to write this book? Well, halfway through last year, last season, I, um, I saw a snippet in the paper about the, uh, about the player agents were finally sanctioned once and for all for the, um, the Melbourne Storm situation that, that blew up in 2010, and um, I just uh, made a couple of calls to some people. It, it just intrigued me that that it was sort of like the final um, the final sanction I guess yeah. on people who were involved and, and I really as, as a lover of sport and the um, sports journal it, it intrigued me that I really didn't know as much as I would like to have known about what went on at the Melbourne Storm mm. um, and having a, a longer sort of um, uh, I guess admiration for, for the Storm previous to the salary cap scandal and being a Melbourne person uh, you know I knew about the, the 99 premiership um, the uh, the tougher times followed that and the constant struggle that the teams had being a rugby league team in Melbourne mm. I just thought that um, that the story needed some um, uh, needed telling I guess so I um, put my thinking cap on and thought that uh, you know it would make a good book and then uh, that was just before the finals I'd sort of decided that the book would go ahead and then of course Storm yeah. uh, won the premiership so that sort of uh, spurred me on there was another another chapter right at the end of what is an unbelievable almost an unbelievable story of modern sport and um, you know how a News Limited owned franchise has been on such a roller coaster ride so yeah away I went and um, Doing interviews. Mm, very much so, and I'm guessing this is just one of those stories that, regardless of whether you're involved or not, if you're a sports fan, it's it's one of those ones that you'd really want to hunt down and try and shed a little light on. And myself, uh, I forgot to mention before we kick this off, I am a Melbourne Storm supporter, even though I am born in Penrith. I yep. bleed purple, and I must say, from my perspective, this was an absolute outstanding read for someone who was only eight years old at the time of their inception. So to be able to look. At a you know somewhat a timeline and all the controversy leading up to this point, it was a very eye-opening read uh, for me. But the other thing uh, is just how long did it take you to gather all this information? Because you've got you know there's quotes, emails, letters, interviews, um, just some general conversation, and 
probably some detail in there, I suppose, that people probably wouldn't want to, uh, to disclose to you or, you know, there's some touchy points in there. Obviously, yep. it was a pretty big issue, but uh, just how long of a timeline did it take you to kind of gather all this and put it together? Well, it was a, it was a hectic time, I guess, um, all through uh, for the post-season and then uh, all through uh, last summer was with my main research time. Um, and it was just a matter of putting uh, my head down and getting as many interviews done as possible. And for... You know, for the some people, I guess you're spot on. Some people um, didn't want to uh, have things revealed and uh, and gone back over by a journalist. But um, it surprised. You know, a lot of people did, and a lot of people involved in the club felt like they they needed to to pass on their information and um, you know and explain what happened there. So uh, yeah, I mean, people do want the truth to come out and. Uh, for some people, it probably some people who were involved in the club, whether uh, or not they were quoted in the book or or not, uh, I think it was maybe a little bit of a um, a worthy thing to go through to, to maybe put a fine a full stop. And, and that was a quote from a couple of a couple of sources was they'd like to see this thing in print and they'd like to uh, maybe put a full stop on it so that the club can uh, can finally uh, move on and and uh, not be worried about uh, more books. Although not to say that there might be uh, more stories written about it. Mm, definitely. Um, what about in comparison to your day-to-day sports writing, Paul? Like, what's what's the comparison like to writing a book? I know um, you constantly hear journo's, uh, you know, in Sydney, and I know um, in the in the NRL. I'm not sure whether it's a problem in the AFL, but just access to sources, information, um, when you're trying to compile a story or information. Did it? Did you find a difference between? Um, you know, a day-to-day article and and that of a book, or was it was it easier? Yeah, it was. I guess it was easier in a sense that I was um, that I'd given myself time, and, and as as hectic hectic as it was, you know, I've, I gave myself a good um, six months to do the research, and mm. and that's a long time in news news media today. Um, you know, I work on a on a television show that's day to day, and we're rolling news, and um, you know. We, stories sort of tack on to one another and they, they come and they go and uh, I guess I, I did give myself that time so it was slightly easier and I was in a good position too because I, I do work at the ABC and I understand employer I'm, I'm quite um, independent so I, I didn't have a, a relationship or any um, uh, you know any ongoing dealings with News Limited um, I'm not a paid employee of Melbourne Storm so um you know, and I've, you know, I've got no um, attachment to the NRL, so I was, I was able to just go for it. Um, there are, you know, journalists, uh, rugby league writers, and some of them very, very fine sports journalists, some of the best in the country, who, who probably would, would like the opportunity to have six months and go and do a story. But um, as you send the pace of the news this year with uh, all the different uh, stuff going on in sport, it's sometimes it's hard to catch your breath if yeah. you're a big reporter and, and you're filing every day. So... Mm. Yeah, for me it was enjoyable. As much as it was hard to do, it was it was an enjoyable experience. Mm. Well, I think it's uh, fair to say from their inception in '98 to uh, now, the club has definitely been one surrounded by success and controversy from uh, several cap breaches prior to the major one that led to the stripping of the titles and the points and the cleaning out of the club. That uh, obviously Brian Waldron, somewhat mastermind from uh, you know Rodney Howe steroids and bleeding in absolute debt, which didn't seem to be too much of a problem, to 
you know, winning a comp in their second year and then after all the controversy, winning a minor premiership and then a competition just two years after and, and producing champions such as the big three and Greg Inglis. But uh, what about your perception probably at the start down in Melbourne when it was announced that they were going to have a team called the Melbourne Storm and an NRL team, something, you know, very foreign uh, down there in AFL ter- territory to, you know, your perception of the Melbourne Storm today? Yeah, well, the, um, I guess going through all those things, the one thing that just sort of stands out in my mind when you list all those different things is most of them are related to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, News Limited was the constant and, and has been right up until this year when they sold the club. Uh, you know, the players who were, were all wonderfully recruited in those early days, they, they grew up together and they hit their mid-20s together and um, so that caused the salary cap uh, issue that the club uh, had to face. And, and ultimately failed that test by, by paying over the cap. Uh, so all those things, are, uh, I guess, they're, they're interwoven. Uh, it makes it a more fascinating story for me. But uh, my impressions of the club early on were, um, uh, look, about 15 years ago, but it was always sort of look back at it with a bit of a romantic sort of um, lens because living in Melbourne, I, I grew up... Um, under the roof of a, um, a Sydney dad. My, my dad was from Sydney and grew up down the road from Belmore. So I always um, watched as much as it was on TV, which wasn't that often down in Melbourne. I was uh, was a big fan of rugby league and, and followed Canterbury. But when I, when I got to the sort of mid-90s and Super League blew up, I guess uh, it, was, it was hard to follow. And I know lots of fans were lost to the game and, and uh, fell out of love with the game during the Super League thing. Well, in, in rugby league foreign territory in Melbourne, it was it was hard to even keep up with uh, with which team was in what competition. Yeah. So I lost a bit, of, a bit of interest there, and then all of a sudden after that, this club sprung up, and uh, you know the Melbourne Storm was was there, and you had Marcus Bai, who was um, a cult figure, and and no wonder he's just run over people. Um, so he, he was terrific. You know, Steve Kearney's haircut was uh, was fantastic, <laughs> and. And, uh, you know, I was a big fan of Brett Kamali in the early days. Uh, I thought he was a perfect player just because of his, um, his ball handling and, and his passing. So, yeah, I, I was uh, attracted to the club. Not that I was um, a week-to-week um, attendee of the matches, but, you know, I went to a couple of matches and, and it was good. It was very earthy. Um, AFL was taking off in a, in a whole new professional direction and... Uh, the Melbourne Storm had this great feel about it. Um, but then as it sort of moved in and uh, and started to, to not be as successful, I guess the, the crowds died off slowly. And then uh, then came this, this new coach who changed everything, Craig Bellamy. And, uh, he, he hit with a splash and, and all of a sudden he had to have great players. And then there was, um, I think probably the turning point for, for people down in Melbourne was, was Billy Slater and his emergence. Mm. And as much as we some great players over the years, probably English is the one that, uh, that, that has rivaled uh, Billy Slater. But, you know, nobody has surpassed Billy Slater as someone who can capture the imagination of Melbourne. Um, and I think it's because you can almost picture him in, a, in an AFL um, yeah. jumper, as we, as we call it. You know, he's, yeah. he's, he's got a great science, Devin. I don't have to tell you how great he is to watch. So for me, I started to really um, watch them a bit more closely and then... Uh, as they sort of moved into that successful period, they had a bigger, bigger appeal, broader appeal. Brian Waldron did that. He was, he was brought in. We knew Brian Waldron in this town because of his, uh, 
his place at the St Kilda Footy Club. Uh, he was brought across, and yeah, they, they, they went into a sort of a new a new era, and it was all success. You know, they, they took all before it, and, and sort of people jumped on that success. That's for sure. Mm. Oh, for sure. Um, look, for me, oh, when when all this broke, um, and you know, obviously the salary cap breaches were revealed. Um, it, it polarised people, I must admit. A lot of people were quick to um, to bash up Melbourne, and I don't know whether that was because, um, you know, there's that Sydney-Melbourne rivalry, for sure. Um, and I still get the impression today that maybe that um, affects some people's judgement on the whole um, scenario. For me, I, there's no doubt they cheated the salary cap. There's no doubt they needed to be punished. Um, but me personally, I, I think... Rugby league in Melbourne is essential. Like we, it has to be there, and um, I'm really glad that they've been able to rebuild and, and get back on top. Um, I certainly didn't expect it to happen as quickly as, as what it has. Um, but your just your opinion on it from that independent standpoint. Do you think that the club's been um, punished fairly or unfairly, or um, the sanctions were were over the top or, or, or less than what they should have been? Yeah, I guess I could see it in all. Um from different angles and I, and I sort of understand the way that people view it differently. With the book, I've, I've tried to, to not put my judgments in there and, and not um, cut, reach any grand conclusion. I've sort of tried to stick to the facts and um, and, and let, that, let the reader, um, pay that respect to the reader to, to work out what they think. So uh, I'm going to sort of sit on the fence there a little bit and, and not, uh, not make those judgments. But... Um, you know, the, the big argument was, uh, you know, from a lot of people I spoke to, it probably hasn't been too much of an argument about the 09 Premiership being taken away. Um, there, there is an argument uh, that the 07 Premiership, um, that the club wasn't that far over that it, that it demanded, you know, the loss of the Premiership there. And even the minor Premiership, I think it talk, talked about too much in 06. Um, but the question is, is still, you know, were the figures that were released much later after the Deloitte report, were they accurate? Were the, was the club actually that far over? Um, you know, people, people attached to the club are dubious about those, those figures because, um, you know, they sort of backed up the, the tough stance taken by the NRL and by, um, you know, by News Limited, News Limited and the club sure it gets a bit tricky after that but um, so yeah I think that that's, that's an argument worth having um, ultimately the players if you, if you speak to the players they don't feel that um, anyone has taken the 07 and 09 experience away from them and we saw that even before the grand final last year and there were questions after Slater and Hoffman and all these guys you know do you feel like this will be your first first premiership if you win it and uh, their answer was, no, well, we won two before. And we, we don't feel like, um, you know, that, that's, that they uh, won premierships almost. So how do, you, how do you strip someone of their memory? They still have those very special memories. And there's no doubt that the bond of the club is, is, as, is as close as, as anything that I've, um, I've witnessed at a football club. They're so close that that, that experience still lived there with them. I guess... Uh, the other thing to say is that they playing for no points was um, was something that was talked about a lot, and people had their strong views about that. That it was unfair to play without points for the for the whole of 2010. 
it was a very unusual situation. And, um, you know, the, the views are very strong from Melbourne people in regard to that. But yeah. I did have a couple of people tell me, and, um, you know, they didn't want to have their names put to it, but you know, a couple of people involved in the club said that they saw that playing for no points was the only way to go, um, that they couldn't keep playing four points and winning points while they had that roster, which was so, so far over the salary cap. Yeah. So, yeah, I haven't really asked you answer your question as far as, you know, telling you what I think, but I've, all the way along, I've deliberately stayed away from reaching those conclusions. I'm happier for other people to, to reach those conclusions, but yeah. I certainly understand those different views, that's for sure. Yeah, well, I guess reading, reading the book, I, I got that feeling that it was independent. Um, and that's that's the way that I always try to look at it. Obviously, Louis is a Melbourne fan, but I think he does a pretty good job of um, staying independent as well, or keeping it as black and white as possible. Yeah, well, like I said, at the end of the day, one two points you touched on there, I completely agree with, and uh, I was lucky enough to get to meet uh, a lot of them when I was down in Canberra, but when they were playing for no points by that point in time, and seeing Greg Inglis and a few of them out in the town, it was obviously a pretty loose year in that regard uh, they let the reins off but I, that was the first question I asked any of them and that was how do you feel now knowing that in the history books that's been taken away and uh, I think more than two or three of them pretty much flashed their tattoo at me straight away and said you know yourself from being a player that when you've done something like that or you've got the medal at home or the ring it's just something that can't be taken away and as far as they're concerned uh, it did happen yeah. uh, obviously the circumstance is very unfortunate but you're 100% right you, you can't get rid of something like that from your memory and then winning a premiership too is there's there's more to it than the, you know the, the tattoos are a daily reminder I guess they, yeah. they had those, uh, those tattoos on the ribs after the um, after the 07 premiership but it's a it's a relationship yeah. um, with with your teammates that that you have forever so yeah. um, as much as the premierships go on there's an asterisk in the history books yeah they, those players I don't think that that had hurt them as much as other things because. Um, They've still got those strong bonds, and when they get together, they they still share those moments and talk about the game. Um, and I guess the discussion around the teams they beat is a whole other issue. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I did speak to Daniel Anderson about the '09 um, premiership, and you know, I asked him as well about um, whether or not he felt cheated, and, and he didn't. He felt like um, you know his, his team has been taken to Jackson and, uh, and wasn't able to win that one. And, and so, yeah, you haven't sort of seen that anger from, from the other clubs uh, publicly no. anyway. I guess he's made sometimes with dignity here as well. Yeah, I, I know Parramatta and Manly fans, obviously, they're the two sides that they defeated or defeated in those grand finals that were later stripped. Um, I, I don't get that feeling um, that, that the fans hold any resentment um, for the losses. I, I think they, they probably resent the club now as a whole. Um, there's probably yeah. a little bit more hate for, for Melbourne than um, what there was previously. But, um, yeah, I think a lot of that subsided. So sort of back onto you know, the issue that you said sort of sparked your interest in it, the role of the player managers. Now, um, reading the book, for me, um, it seemed like they were, the, uh, they were the conduit between, obviously, the player and the club. Um, and when you try to not distribute blame, but I guess try and establish some responsibility, I, I got the impression that the player managers... Um, were probably the only ones that had a not a complete idea or a complete knowledge of what was going on, but they must have known um, during those times that, that something dodgy was going on, especially when Brian Waldron... There was one case there where Greg Inglis 
um, took a pay cut from 450 to 400, um, and it, the contract was filed with the NRL. Um, it, it just seemed really interesting, you know, the role of the player manager and you know how independent they are, and the players on their books could come from all 16 different clubs. You know, there's no sort of uh, bias or or loyalty in the player managers. Um, I just found that really interesting. Yeah, well, and that was a, that was a fascinating case where uh, where Alan Ganey was representing uh, Greg Inglis, and he, um, uh, you know, he he was in a situation where he thought that that Inglis might go the way of Gaznier and, and head overseas or follow Sonny Bill Williams and, and leave his management and uh, and be uh, managed by Cody Nassif. So that, that was when it all happened, and he he wasn't up for. Negotiations of contract uh, for another little while, but but while John contacted him and said that uh, you know we need to to look at Greg's contract. Well, Alan Gay at that stage had a couple of concerns: uh, one to keep his player, and two to get his best, best deal possible for his player. So uh, you know they're, they're at the centre of everything in in salary negotiations, and you know. Uh, probably outside of um, Ange Stubert, who's, who's the long-standing salary cap auditor for the NRL, these guys uh, know as much about what goes on as anyone. And in fact, you know, as I sort of write in the book, they 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 use that to their advantage in negotiations when they're trying to get the best deal for the for the uh, their players, and they play clubs off against each other, and um, and clubs do the same thing. So it is a they're full-on negotiations, but I guess that maybe the one point, and the thing that I uh, learned through this um, whole process and, and doing all the research was that maybe the agents are, are a symptom of the system yeah. and um, and not so much a, a cause. Um, and I guess some might disagree with that, but um, you know they can only do what they can get away with. Yeah. And they it, it was put to me that that agents um, push the boundaries and in the same way that coaches will push, push the boundaries with the laws of the game uh, and their on-field tactics or, their, or the way that the, the referees are interpreting a different um, a different law of the game, that they, they push the boundaries and I guess it's up to the game to, to enforce its laws and uh, they can only do what they can get away with. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a complex thing, but I hear what you're saying for sure. So the player payments, you know, you know, like if let's let's put ourselves in, you know, player X's situation and um, money's falling into uh, your account that's not, um, you know, from from the club or, or from wherever your normal payment comes. Um, you know, I know Hardigan went in and challenged the, the players once all this broke, and um, you know, said, "Well, who do you think was putting the money in there?" You know, the fairy god godmother and. Um, the players sort of said, well, we thought they were TPA. So um, accountability is really difficult in in this situation. I mean, and in the Deloitte report, obviously, a lot of the players um, stated that as well. They thought that the money was from TPAs, not um, obviously something that wasn't, uh, you know, a part of what was on the books at Melbourne. So really really difficult situation to sort of make anyone accountable. I, I, that was the other part of it that I, I found really interesting and um, found it hard to put the book down. But um... yeah. well, that, 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 it is an interesting one. But most of those, uh, when, when they say that they thought that they were, that they were third-party agreements, a lot of that cash was 
a lot of the yeah. money that, um, that it, you, you know, see these grand figures of X amount over the salary cap, large chunks of that were in those third-party agreements. Now, the, the, the breach, the breaches came when the club, uh, through Brian Waldron, guaranteed the money in the side deals. Yeah. So the side deals were um, for uh, Inglis, uh, Smith and Slater. And, you know, they were, they were large third-party agreements. And I, I would find it difficult to see anyone that's, that doesn't think that um, those guys deserve third-party agreements. Yeah. Um, because they're the, they're the people that get, get people through the gates and they get them watching on TV and, and you know, talk about three of the, um, the great players. So um, third-party agreements are critical. But at that stage, you couldn't... There was a, a rule that you... The club could not um, guarantee them yeah. uh, officially in documentation, and for the players, it, it is difficult because uh, you know when I quoted Mark Gaznier's book, um, Andrew Webster's uh, wrote with with Gaznier yeah. um, about how he had uh, third party agreements in place during his career, and then it, he realised that the, the money wasn't coming through from these companies that had offered offered him money through TPOs. Yeah. And, you know, he had financial commitments that he couldn't make because the money wasn't there. And these companies turned around and said, oh, sorry, we haven't got the cash. Um, well, you can see why players and agents want to get that money guaranteed. But, um, you know, it's, the rules are there. You, you couldn't guarantee them. Since slightly changed, I think I've looked at it forensically in the last year. And I know that they, they leave considering salary cap changes. But um, certainly they, they loosened the... Um, the marquee player allowance so that, so that there could be some more money guaranteed for the players. So it's slightly different now that back then you couldn't guarantee that the TPAs and Brian Waldron did. Yeah, definitely. Um, what about the CFOs, mate? I, Waldron went through three of them while he was there. It must have been a really difficult um, situation for those guys, and uh, especially when the majority of them would have known that the cheating was going on. Um, yeah. And then they, you know, there were some email exchanges in there that were, were hostile and um, met with uh, aggression and, and um, hostility. A really difficult time for those guys that were employed um, as CFOs. And, you know, there was that always that predicament that, you know, do I tell someone or, or do I not tell someone? And, um, you know, obviously the club was so successful and it was clear that they were going to have, well, they, they had a dynasty um, there. and obviously any disclosure would have would have isolated them and, and, and brought the whole thing down. So it must have been a really difficult situation for those guys and um, and then to have their name um, tainted when, when it all came out. Uh, it must have been really, really difficult for... Uh, I think it was Vale, Hanson and Gregory were the, were the three yep. guys. And, um, I, think, I think it was hard for them. Um, and they, uh, you know, they, they had their decisions to make along the way and uh, you know, there was a lot of pressure... The email exchange you talk about paints a, a good picture and gives you a good window into into the pressures of professional sport. Yeah. That um, you know it's not just about training and playing. There are these issues to, to deal with, and you know it was a it was a tense time because the, the storm was so successful in recruiting in those early days, getting Cronk, um, Slater, and Smith together, uh, and then Peter O'Sullivan recruiting Greg Inglis and. Israel Folau came out and, um, they, and not to mention people like Matt King that they were able to get through and yeah. Brett White and the list goes on so they were, they were uh, terrific at developing players and picking players and, and getting the best out of them and, and part of that 
uh, a lot of that is Craig Bellamy's expertise as coach. So the frustration was there that look, we're doing we're doing this really really well, but the rules say that we we yeah. won't be able to keep them all. Yeah. And so yeah, it was a tense situation, and the CFOs found themselves right in the middle of all that. And uh, yeah, so I guess I wanted to explain the decision making that they went through as well, and uh, and once again have the reader you know uh, understand a little bit about what happened behind the scenes and work out maybe even um, as you're reading the book put yourself in the shoes of the different people involved yeah. even you know even in the, in the shoes of Brian Mould and and, um, and then uh, as you're reading I don't know if that was your experience but um, maybe wonder what would you do in, in that situation yeah definitely and keep, keeping in mind that um, the, the theme I guess that runs throughout and even today is the question marks of these clubs and the understanding that other other clubs uh, are paying over the over the salary cap as well. Yeah. And uh, you know what we saw there again this year there was five hundred thousand dollars worth of fines, and that, that fantastic um, seven thirty report story last week in the ABC um, talking about the the um, money outside the cap for Paul Gallant. Yeah. So you hear these things so often that uh, that. There certainly was a belief at the Melbourne Storm, whether or not it was right uh, or not, that everyone was doing it. Yeah, just uh, how big the snowball gets, isn't it, really? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I mean, every club, um, you know, we've probably heard from within the last five years, I'd say most clubs have had a salary cap breach. Um, whether they're systematically cheating in that, in that, to that degree um, is a different story. But you look at the things that sort of had to, had to go wrong for, for the storm, for this to unravel, um, and it is difficult for the, for the NRL and for any professional sporting body to determine um, who is and who isn't cheating the cap without whistleblowers or, or without them um, uh, cocking up, I guess. Um, difficult, difficult, but... Yeah, um, and Ian, Ian Schubert um, has, has probably got the most unenviable job yeah. uh, in, in rugby league, and he's done it for so long. But um, uh, whether you like the job that he's done or not, I think you have to admire um, the, the way that he's stuck to the task. And, and he can enforce only the rules that are, uh, that are established formally uh, by the NRL or now by the Commission. So, um, yeah, for me, I mean, I, as I've said, I've probably said a couple of times, I don't want to repeat myself, but um, yeah, I'm happy for people to, to read about that and, and work out for themselves, um, you know, what they think about those different different issues in a, in a broader story. I guess it's didn't want it to just be... A, those salary um, gap issues, I didn't want that just to be about the storm, but, but to put it in context. And um, even to talk about in the early days when the storm through John Rivo tried to get salary gap concessions, which yeah. the, the AFL gives massive concessions to Sydney and Brisbane and, and um, 
more recently the other clubs that have been established, the expansion clubs. Well, Melbourne Storm didn't get those Shoulder Cup concessions, so there is even that sort of resentment from the Storm early on. But you can understand why, why the other clubs pushed back on it those early days, because Storm won the 99 Premiership. Exactly, and, yeah. And they were saying, well, you guys have won a Premiership, now you want more concessions. Mm. Well, uh, you know, they're how are we going to uh, tip by and accept that? Yeah. So. I think that was also a reason why the the NRL had to bring in the commission to, to have that independent body and independent governance. And you know, probably I, I I'd almost guarantee that if the commission was in place at that point in time, that the Storm would have got cap concessions. And um, you know, I think for any expansion team that comes in later on, um, and as you said, you see it in the AFL, uh, they'll definitely get concessions, and you need to to make them a viable part of your competition. Yeah, and John Quayle was interesting. I, I mean, uh, once again, news limited is, is the big factor there. That clubs were um, clubs that were probably um, still reflecting on what happened with with Super League were anti news limited as well. And I thought, is this club owned by by news limited now half owning the league? So I don't know all those issues. John Quayle was interesting to talk to. He was, you know, he was, uh, a visionary in the game, and um, he said that if he was in the uh, in David Gallup's position around that sort of 0-2, time then, then he would have given salary cap concessions yeah. to Storm. Uh, but then once again, David Gallup was in a, in a tricky situation It really wasn't up to him because there was a partnership and, and all the other clubs essentially had to um, had to agree to it and understand. So um, he, was, he was caught in the middle in that particular one, I think. What about Brian Waldron? I mean, he was... Uh... He was painted as the king rat. Um, he, he sort of went rainbow a little bit on the contract negotiations, and um, you know, obviously the side letters, the majority of them would be attributed to him. Um, yep. It's it's difficult to sort of um, lay any accountability elsewhere. I mean, he was he was the CEO. He's the he's the boss of the organisation, um, and you know, there's there's details in the book that that say that you know if. If news knew that he was um, cheating the salary cap, he would have been um, sacked straight away. So, uh, I guess he he was the king rat, or or do you have a, a different opinion on that? Or um, because uh, I, you know, yes, yeah, I'm Audrey, the CEO. Yeah, and um, you know he was the CEO through that period, and he did the the contract negotiations. He was the one that guaranteed the money in those side letters. You know, he did bid all those deals. So. There's no, there's no getting away from that. Um, uh, the the news limited coverage of the of the scandal afterwards was uh, was something I touched on in the book as well. There was a lot of hysteria there, and uh, he, he was painted as a chief rat. And they also said that um, the news limited uh, masters were running with stories that uh, the storm five those those five. Uh, people have been named, including Brian Wilder, as the king, so-called King Rat, yeah. were facing up to ten years jail. That yeah. was one of the um, one of the headlines. Um, now, Brian Wilder's culpability in in, in the uh, overpaying of players is something you can't really argue against. You know, that's that's a fact. But uh, there were no charges laid uh, afterwards, and the Victoria Police decided not to lay any charges. So not only did they not get ten years jail, but there were there were actually no charges, and not even a um, not even a misdemeanour that was that was put um, on any of on any of those uh, those fires. So yeah, I'm not trying to minimise the um, minimise the blame on Walton. Uh, far from it, but um, 
what I wanted to do with the book was to put everything in context and then have people sort of understand the, the broader story, the pressures that this guy was under, mm. um, and you know, and, and not just have that uh, that tag of King Rat, but but explain uh, what happened, the position he was in, and uh, you know, the, the, the fascinating thing for me is that Brian Walsh has maintained his silence ever since. Yeah. Um, very publicly. I mean, he's, he's tried to get on with his life. Uh, he's, um, he's got a couple of kids. He coaches footy. He's parked. He's stands on the hill and watches the, the football and the amateur competition. Uh, Aussie rules, I mean. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's back in business uh, working with some friends that, that, uh, and some colleagues that he had at the Kilda Footy Club before Storm. So, yeah, absolutely fascinating to me that, that he hasn't said more, but uh, it's my understanding that that he doesn't want to, um, you know, to, to be a feature in the newspapers again because of the, um, because of the, uh, you know, the, the storm, pardon the punk, that went down in the media after the scandal. Yeah. Well, that's the kind of thing for me, I suppose, being a Melbourne supporter at the time, he was labelled as this and that and he was all in the papers, but we never heard a single word out of him. It was just absolutely blew my mind that he virtually ghosted it. I think... From uh, if memory serves me correctly, he was about to head off and help the Melbourne Rebels. We had he had he'd he, already signed. Yeah, yeah, he was signed to go to the Melbourne Rebels, and then after this went down, the bloke just you know went absolutely ghosted. It. I was dumbfounded and haven't seen him since, which was you know, going to be one of my questions. I'm still sitting here today wondering what he's been up to or where he disappeared to. It just absolutely blew my mind. Mm. Uh, yeah, he, he works in a clothing apparel sort of clothing apparel um, company. Um, and as I say, he's still got those business relationships that he formed when he was the CEO, uh, football manager and then CEO of the St Kilda Football Club. Yeah. He's got a strong, uh, he's got a strong group of friends, um, as I understand, and, and he's also, uh, you know, he's got a good, strong family around him as well. Um, so, and perhaps that's what. That's what's made his decision not to, to get back into public life or to, or to come out and, um, and maybe write his own book and, and do a, a big tell He doesn't want to drag his family back into the spotlight. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, as, as much as he was right at the centre of this, and a very, very big personality too. Um, yeah. You know, a guy, that's, uh, a guy that was happy to play centre stage when he was the CEO of a team that was, was flying. Mm. Um, you know, as much as uh, he was all that, he's also a guy that's got a couple of kids, and um, you know, he, he wanted to protect his family when it all happened. But yeah, uh, fascinating character and, and uh, an intriguing man. Yeah, it's funny how, in a situation of um, uh, you know, unethical, that is unethical, becomes uh, you know, morality comes to the head of it. Um, it it's it's, inter- it's yeah. interesting when I was sort of reading the book and I. But, you know, they were the reasons why he, he sort of didn't, um, or, or he's maintained his silence. Um, but the, the interesting part for me, like, in 2010 when it all broke, it was it was shocking and everyone was shocked in the rugby league world. I know in Sydney it was just massive news. It, it was uh, it was everywhere for, for probably a month there um, as it all unravelled and, and more details came out. But the one for me was, you know, when, the, when Ian Schubert sort of, he had enough bullets in his gun to sort of go after the storm, and um, he, he went down. And uh, you know they were they were handed the letter, or, or, or they were told face to face, firstly that they were going to go after him. But then uh, yeah. received the letter. Uh, they then travelled up. 
um, the day after, you know, a few of the storm board members. And um, the interesting part for me was that the, the sanctions that were handed out from the NRL um, and then that the storm accepted them that day um, without receiving the breach notice and the technicalities yeah. that were went around that with Rule 9 and Rule 10 in the, in the NRL rules and, um, you know, then going to the High Court. Um, do you think the consequences could have been uh, less severe if, if they would have held off, stayed in Melbourne and, um, you know, I know it's a hypothetical, but it took the six days that they, they may have had to then have a look at the consequences and, and then uh, make a decision from there? I think I think possibly. Uh, yeah. It definitely would have been different. I'm not sure at the end of the day that the sanctions would have changed. Mm. Um, I'm not convinced by that uh, because the NRL had to be strong on it and uh, there was the conflict of interest there with, with News Limited being the owner of the club, you know, the partnership uh, with the with uh, the, the NRL and um, and also the commercial um reality with uh, with the pay TV broadcaster and being a you know an outlet the major outlet that's going to cover this thing in a journalistic form so I still think those those ingredients would have um, led the NRL to be very tough yeah. um, and so maybe the sanctions would have been oh, I could be wrong maybe the sanctions would have been uh, the same I think but what it would have done was that if, if storm had a Originally, the letter said that they should come uh, come to Sydney the following week, yeah. and they went up the next day. Yep. So I had a little, little time pass, and, and this thing reached the media, and um, you know there were stories written, and a little bit of uh, and a bit of time pass. Maybe you wouldn't have seen quite this this hysteria. Yeah. Um, you know, and we saw a salary cap breach in the AFL last year where the Adelaide Crows were involved and Kurt Tippett was the man at the centre of that. Yeah. Um, the AFL took its time and AFL and NRL work differently. Sometimes they do things uh, better than the other. Um, but in this case, you know, the AFL uh, took their time and uh, eventually they reached a, a position where Kurt Tippett got uh, 11-match suspension and official got a suspension and there was a large fine as well. Yeah. And I think the length of time that they took and the, uh, I guess, the meetings they had behind closed doors probably um, took the heat out of it a little bit. Uh, but having said that, you know, Melbourne Storm was was the, the top dog. Um, you know, won a couple of championships. I was going to say, yeah, that, that would have made it a little bit harder for them, wouldn't it? Because they were such a dominant side, a dynasty, and had won all those competitions, four grand finals in a row. It's... Um, yeah. Not, not that it's uh, so much different, but it obviously ties the league's hands in, doesn't it, in terms of acting a, l- a little bit quicker? I think maybe it just would have taken the, the sting out of uh, out of the big blow-up and, and how it all just exploded on one day. It might have just had people um, thinking a bit more clearly. Yeah. Um, you know, Storm may have got some legal advice and, uh, you know, maybe something might have been different. But the chairman at the time was Rob Moody, and he... Uh, you know, he's, he's a guy who teaches ethics. He's a, um, you know, the, the academic health official that goes around the world and teaches third world countries um, how to run the health system. So he's a guy that, that once everything was was revealed to him, he wanted to own up, you know, and he wanted to just um, get it all done with. Mm-hmm. He, so he was, uh, he was the catalyst to go to Sydney the next day and, and uh, you know, Rob Moody's a fine man and 
um, he made that decision based on, on what he was feeling at the time. So once again, it's all these different pieces that just fell into place to make an extraordinary event um, on top of all the other extraordinary um, sort of uh, experiences, good and bad, that, that Storm had all yeah. through that period. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to wonder what might happen if things went differently. Mm. All right. We, uh, I mean, the, other, the other thing is, briefly, I mean, if if the Sharks had won the, the NRL Premiership last year, yeah. and you know we we hear that story about Paul Gallon and, and the money from last week, would people be demanding that the, oh. the Premiership be stripped? Great point. Um, Great point, mate. There, there, a lot of stuff would have happened a lot faster. Exactly right. Yeah. So, so I think that's interesting. Storm had won. Had, had those uh, had those two Premierships in the bank. So. Yeah, that's that's why I think that um, you know it's different when a team has won a premiership. And that that's what polarised people in 2010. You know, I can remember I was on the side saying that um, you know I, I didn't think that the players had a case to answer, and I felt for the players and I felt for Bellamy, and I I thought well a lot of these players have been obviously developed at Melbourne. Um, you know, they they taken a gamble on a lot of these guys that had turned into they're now going to be future immortals. You know. Um, Inglis, Slater, Smith, um, and Cronk, you know, ridiculous their ability. Um, and I know a lot of people that still uh, think that, you know, they're still gaining an advantage out of, you know, the cheating that came to a head in 2010. But um, it just polarised people, and it, and it still does, and it's it's interesting. And um, I know Louis, Louis doesn't like to say too much because people hammer him, about, um, hammer him about being biased. But for me, I, you know, I... I really can't see how Craig Bellamy um, would have known known about the you know the cheating. I, I mean, in a lot of professional sporting org- organisations, there is there's not a detachment, but there is certain um, you know you know your job description. Um, Craig's job description is to coach the team and get results on the field, and you know the, the job to manage salary and uh, the salary cap itself is is the job of you know the CEO and the and the financial officers. So. Um, I, I sort of don't attribute any blame to, to Bellamy and um, I think the majority of the players ended up being the victims of the, the whole situation. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, um, it's for people to, to, to read, I guess, and that's the main reason that I've approached the book is the way I have is uh, not to come to any judgments and not to have any grand conclusions yeah. or, or to call anyone names or anything like that, just to, just to write what we know, yeah. write what I was able to find out. And, uh, and people can, can come to their own conclusions. And I think that's probably the best way, for me anyway, it's the best way to, to, to watch sport and read about sport is, is to um, you know, learn as much as I can and, and uh, enjoy it. And then uh, when there's a, a troublesome situation, read about it and, and make my own opinions and, and have those discussions as well. Um, I am interested in how that has developed the storm support of Louis and um, in Penrith. How did that happen? Uh, mate, uh, as you do when you're a young bloke, like I said, I was only eight years old when they were you know, incepted into the comp. Uh, your, your attention span's not exactly great, as you can imagine, as, as a young bloke going to, <laughs> going to Penrith Park and watching the Panthers, but I, I don't know what it was. I just never seemed to be uh, too enticed by them. I, I was probably more a follower of Canberra at a younger age. I like Mal Meninga and Ricky Stewart, so it was a bit of a coincidence. I ended up uh, heading down there for 20s, but... Um, Melbourne came in. I absolutely loved Glenn Lazarus as well. He was probably my favourite player as a young oh, bloke. Yeah. And, um, yeah, they formed up. They they got the Thunderbolts. It all kind of come together. I liked Stephen Kearney and Tawira Nikio. And, uh, yeah, the love affair just started from there. And 
currently where I'm sitting, I'm staring at the 99 jersey on the wall, the 2012 one, and I also have the 09 and the 07 regardless of what's happened. So, uh, yeah. yeah well, the, 90, the 99 Premiership just doesn't get talked about enough. No, it, it doesn't. It's an unbelievable well, um, you know, game. Pretty uh, technically. I'm not able to win it so early. That's, uh, that's oh. one thing. But that, that game, that grand final. That was a cracker. That was absolutely incredible. They all just panned out there right at the end. Well, 107,000 people were crammed into a stadium to watch a side that had been in a competition for two years, led by a man who'd won competitions at Canberra and Brisbane, who was on his last legs, and a second half that was led by, you know, Tawira Nickow and Stephen Kearney just absolutely losing the plot. and Brett Kamori guiding around the park and poor old Matty Guy had missed a kick from in front a couple of weeks prior to uh, kick the points to get us the win. So for a young bloke, yeah, it was pretty hard not to fall in love with them from such a young age. But Yeah, yeah and I think Chris, I know Chris Anderson fell, fell out um, and, and moved on a couple of years after that, but yeah. he should take great credit. So as to Chabriba um, and Johns that, that got the thing rolling too, yeah. so... I know those guys have got fond memories of those early days. And yeah. um, from, purely from a football sense, it was, that, was, uh, that was incredible. Um, so, yeah, probably won a few, few fans early on. I got a five-year-old son who barracks for the Brisbane Lions, so that, that'll probably hit someone like him one day while he barracks for the, the, Brisbane, the yeah. Brisbane Lions in a Collingwood household. But um, mm, yeah, he, just likes, he likes the Lions, so he loves Jonathan Brown. Well, you've got the same same problem here. The bloke sitting opposite me may work at Penrith, but he goes for the Gold Coast Titans. So you put that one together. Oh, yeah. he, he's a lot older than me, and they come along a lot longer after the storm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, who's, who do you think will uh, get back in for the Premiership this year? Oh, well, I'm always going to sound biased, aren't I? But uh, I don't think uh, at any stage that you could say that you uh, wouldn't like Melbourne, especially when you have the, the spine that they do have with Cameron Smith, Cronk, and Slater, and... Uh, from yep. my point of view, I, I keep a close eye on the 20s and the junior development. This is really the first time uh, where next year we're looking like we're going to have players that have come through our under-16s, 18s and 20s system in, uh, you know, Tohu Harris and Jordan McLean and Kenny Bromwich compared to going out and have a do a dollar dazzler shop like we usually do for some cheap front rowers and players to kind of patch the side up. So if anything, I think uh, we're, you know we've moved into a new phase again where the, the junior development, which was an issue earlier on, is probably uh, at its best stage. We've got 11 players last week that have uh, been in the Melbourne system since they were young and so starting to look good. Yeah, mm. yeah it's good. They can get a couple of Melbournians in there. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I like the Storm, but history history sort of tells you that back-to-back premierships is a tough yeah. thing. You know, in either league... Um, but if I had to, if I had to uh, back a team for my life, it'd be Melbourne. But but outside of that, the only side I can see beating them is South Sydney, to be honest. Yeah, um, yeah possibly. Maybe maybe they, they might find the Roosters at their best. Um, tough to get over. But uh, yeah, if the Storm don't win it, uh, it's going to be tough. Yeah. Yeah. Before we wrap it up, I've got two final questions. How, how close do you think the club, or the Storm, came to folding in the fallout of all of this, um, the salary cap scandal in 2010, mate? I don't think it came close to folding. Uh, I think that uh, it was too important for the commercial um, setup that, that News Limited had. 
um, particularly with uh, with uh, pay TV broadcasting. Yeah. All, all along, Sky and other people were saying that you know, if they if they um, don't do well, I'll relocate all the rest of it. Newsletter had had, um, had it as a, a key commercial uh, plank because um, sponsors sponsors for the league um, like Telstra liked hiding that exposure in Melbourne. They needed that that market. So yeah. I, I think at times that would have been a furphy. I, I think um, they would have moved heaven and earth to to keep the Melbourne Storm going and to keep that rugby league team um, in the RL in Melbourne. Yeah. All right. Last question. Craig Bellamy, um, great leader. His position on the book. Um, did you did you have any contact with him? Um, do you know his position on the book? Uh, that's probably one that a lot of a lot of people in Sydney and a lot of rugby league fans would would like to know. Yeah. Well, I, I heard him um, ask about that on uh, on Fox on three hundred and sixty. We saw exactly uh, the same thing. And um, yeah, well, Paul Kent asked him. Yeah. About the book and. Um, he said that he wants to um, move on, and that was what he said on uh, on three sixty, and that's what he said to me as well. But um, he didn't want to be interviewed uh, for the book. Yeah. That he uh, he only wanted to look forward, and he didn't want to look back. Okay. So um, that that's the position with Craig Bellamy. Um, I will say that I felt I was fortunate enough to get enough information from players yeah. to understand why why he was and why he is such a good coach, and. Um, so I wanted that to. I mean, that that is a um, that's the major theme through the Storm's success for the past ten years. So hopefully, I don't know what you guys thought, but hopefully that uh, that comes across in the book. No, well, um, yeah, it was interesting. The strengths were were in there, and um, and hopefully it, it helps people understand why he's such an effective leader. Yeah, well, it was interesting because watching that, I thought, oh, hang on a minute, you know, like I, I didn't know whether. He didn't agree with parts of the book, but now reading the book, I it, I totally understand, and I think yeah. um, people need to read the book um, to understand his position um, and yeah. get a better idea on the person that he is. But yeah, well, um, I think you, you get enough out of when you've got in there about the the runs of the ten, and uh, you yeah. know he, he led it after Scott Hill, I think it was, or Robbie Ross. He said was usually the leader. He beat everyone on the time trial. Uh, they found him at the gym at appropriate times. He was sleeping at HQ when he first got there while his family was back in Queensland. And as well as that, though, the meetings he was having, bringing all staff, whether it be doctors, physios, uh, and you know, pretty much running a boot camp, pointing around the table, saying, what are we doing uh, recovery-wise? Where are we on the program? Should we slow it down? Like, the, the bloke, uh, he's, you definitely can't question him as a person or as a coach. He's no. obviously a very special bloke, and uh, a lot of players I've read in there as well, you, you talk about their relationships almost like a father figure, he seems to yeah, respond. He loves his players, and in, in professional football across all coaches, now you see time and again that some coaches are, you know, they're, they're coaches' coaches, and they they're very ambitious, and they, uh, you know, they're uh, they got a real focus on on what they're doing. And then you get coaches who just absolutely love their players, and uh, you know, Anderson was the same in the early days, Chris Anderson. And, I think they're the best coaches. For me, they're the best coaches, the ones that are able to have a, a really strong respect and understanding with their players, that care about their players. And I think that's, that's apart from his incredible work ethic, I think that's, that's what Bellamy's strength lies in. His, I mean, the, the players would, uh, 
would literally try to run through a wall if you asked them to. So, yeah, um, yeah those, those are some great strengths. Um, yeah, hopefully that came across in the book as well. Yeah, I definitely did. I, I think um, irrespective of whether he wanted to have input into the book or, or whatever, I think you've painted him in a very independent light, and I think if he, if he did read it, he'd be flattered by um, the way that he was portrayed. Um, I've got to say, mate, it was a great read. Really enjoyed it. I've read it twice, um, and I've recommended it to a lot of people um, in rugby league, right. and we'll certainly pump it on the uh, on the podcast. Um, <laughs> no worries. Thanks for that. And, uh, I really appreciate it. The, uh, your time too. Yeah, and uh, especially from a Melbourne fan's point of view, I thank you. Like I said, only being eight years old at the time of inception for somebody to uh, put something together like this. I know there's a lot of people out there that uh, have bad blood towards Melbourne or they're not the most popular club, but uh, for someone now at this age to want to know the history, it's been absolutely outstanding to be able to look uh, from the inception of the early origin games in 94, 95 and the interest from Lachlan Murdoch walking in and having a chat with Jeff Kennett and being told, don't bring a second-rate team into this town and... Uh, where they've landed today, it's uh, it's absolutely amazing. So I, I thank you. It's, I'm much appreciated to read a book like this and get a perspective on the club and how it came to be and where it is today. Well, I think a lot of the sentiment probably is that Sydney v Melbourne sentiment. I mean, you know, the Swans aren't loved in the uh, in the AFL and Melbourne aren't loved in the NRL. But I, I think collectively, as sports lovers, you respect um, their success and the way that they run. That's for sure. Yeah, we'll wait to see how they all go in the final this year. Yeah, if they want to read of it before the, uh, the final, even better. Well, that's the one. The book is called Storm Cloud, Melbourne Storms, Demise and Resurrection by Paul Kennedy. And, mate, uh, massive appreciation. And thanks again for coming on the podcast. It's uh, greatly appreciated. And uh, we'll make sure we give that a plug and get out there, all good bookstores, online, anywhere you can get your hands on it. Grab the book and have a yep. read. It's uh, you know one you can't put down. Yep, good on you. My pleasure. Thank you. No, thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. And that concludes this special one-off interview with Paul Kennedy, the author of Storm Cloud, Melbourne Storm's Demise and Resurrection. And uh, this one is definitely for everybody, if uh, not just Melbourne fans. Obviously, I'm a Storm fan. People may seem to think this is a bit of a biased uh, point of view or wanted to get him on for that reason in particular, but nothing to do with that. This is a man who uh, works in Melbourne. He's obviously grown up in Sydney around the football, but has uh, much more of an AFL background and works for the ABC, so no ties to News Limited, the Melbourne Storm, or any parties involved with the club. A complete black and white view and uh, a great insight to what went down for a lot of people that are probably sitting around wondering what did happen in 2010. So we'll be plugging this one uh, for the next couple of weeks. Get onto it, have a listen. Great podcast and uh, a great man, Paul Kennedy. The, The book is outstanding, so get your hands on it at all good bookstores, online, anywhere you can. Big thanks, and uh, tune in next week for the podcast. Have a good one, guys. Bring it on. Give us more. Give us more. Where are you going? Where, what, 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 what's going on here? Is that it? Is that it? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.